or perhaps what causes you to stay up late. What gets you out of the house? What would motivate you to go to the other side of the world? Is it success? The opportunity to become wealthy? To witness something extraordinary? What about wisdom? How far would you go for wisdom? How far are you, would you be willing to go, and what would you be willing to give up to witness and hear the wisdom of a great, wise king? This is the situation that we have in the middle of our text this morning. In the midst of reading about Solomon's greatness, we'll encounter a queen from a distant southern land coming to visit Solomon. But the greater, more relevant question for us today is this. How far are you willing to go, and what are you willing to give up to witness and hear the wisdom of an eternal king? Wisdom that leads to eternal life. If you haven't already, turn to our passage this morning, and our passage is 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, and it goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 29. We will walk our way through the text first to get a handle on the wealth and wisdom of Solomon, essentially the glory of Solomon, and then we'll consider the wisdom in the wealth or the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading verse 10 through verse 14 of 1 Kings 9. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon of cedar and cypress, timber, and gold, as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kebel to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. So verse 10 tells us that this exchange between Hiram and Solomon occurred 20 years into the reign of Solomon, essentially after Solomon finishes building the house of the Lord and the house of uh, the forest of Lebanon, uh, Solomon's palace, right? Now, the rest of the events that we read in this passage don't necessarily occur during this time, uh, and that will be evident as we uh, get there. But this particular exchange between Hiram and Solomon has occurred about 20 years into the reign of Solomon. And with this deal, Solomon has offered Hiram 20 cities, and Hiram is not pleased. In fact, by reading the text, we could possibly even infer that Hiram is maybe a little offended that Solomon even considered to give Hiram these 20 cities. And these cities are called Cable, which uh, according to the ancient historian Josephus, is a Phoenician word meaning useless. So Hiram looks at this, he's like, these cities? What good are these? These are pointless. These are useless. And they could be so useless that these might be the cities that Solomon actually rebuilds for himself. In 2 Chronicles 8, which is the parallel account of 1 Kings 9, it talks about Solomon rebuilding cities that Hiram had given him. And so it's possible that Hiram was so dissatisfied with these cities, he let Solomon keep them, thinking it not his, worth his time or his energy or his money to rebuild these cities. So Solomon receives them and rebuilds them up for his own good. However, despite this offense, Hiram continues to maintain positive relations with Solomon. He overlooks it, and he overlooks it so much so that he gives Solomon 120 talents of gold. Now, if you're not familiar with a talent, a talent is 75 pounds. It's a measure of weight. So this is 120 talents of gold, or 9,000 pounds of gold, four and a half tons of gold, just in this one gift Hiram has given Solomon. 
And at today's market price in U.S. dollars, that's close to $232 million just in this one gift of gold to Solomon. Now, let's continue reading on uh, verses 15 through 23. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house in the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt, rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Horon and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness and the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, and Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. So here we have other construction projects listed that Solomon pursued. We also have some military projects that Solomon um, underwent as well, which involved building up fortifications and the defenses of Jerusalem and the other cities of Israel recognizing that even in peace, it is wise to always be ready for a fight. And in fact, by always being ready for a fight, one is often able to maintain the peace. In verse 16, it records that the king of Egypt, uh, that the Pharaoh, who at this point in time most likely is Pharaoh Siamon, who reigned from 979 B.C. to 960 B.C., uh, gifted cities to Solomon due to Solomon's marriage to his daughter, which we have read about starting back in 1 Kings uh, 3. Uh, and we believe this to be Pharaoh Simon because the Pharaoh that follows, uh, Shishak, Shishak um, is unfriendly towards Israel. In fact, we will read about Shishak um, next week in chapter 11. That is a tongue twister this morning for me. Verses 20 through 22 speaks of the slaves that Solomon used, the cheap labor, the free labor that he used to uh, build all these construction projects. So these, this forced labor, these slaves were made of the conquered nations of the promised land, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the people who should have been destroyed, utterly destroyed, but for one reason or not have survived the conquest that Israel um, did on the promised land, and thus Solomon uses them uh, as a slave labor. However, he does not enslave any of his fellow Israelites because per Leviticus 25, it is unlawful for Israel to enslave their fellow citizen. Now let's continue and read verses 24 through 28. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up, used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Izion Gibber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea, and the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. So here we see two acts of faithfulness by Solomon. The first is that Solomon builds a house, for his Egyptian wife, his foreign wife. 
Um, in 2 Chronicles 8:11 gives us the reason why. It reads, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So Solomon here, even though he's married to a foreign wife, which he shouldn't be, um, he is, but he still provides for her, and he's still trying to maintain uh, some sort of faithfulness with God by providing a house for her that's outside of the city of David. Then the chapter closes by mentioning this impressive uh, trade network. Oh, excuse me, I should back up. And then we're told the second act of faithfulness is Solomon's offering uh, three times a year uh, the sacrifices at the temple. And this um, will essentially be the last act of faithfulness that we see recorded in Solomon um, because in the next chapter, next week, we will read about his falling away, his idolatry, which is in part related to the fact that he is married to a foreign wife and not just one, but many. So the chapter, chapter 9, closes by mentioning an impressive trade network that Solomon and King Hiram have established. One that has netted Solomon 420 talents of gold. Just this one trade mission has given him 420 talents of gold. That's 31,500 pounds, or close to 16 tons of gold, which is over $800 million uh, at the current market price. Now, if you keep track, that puts us well over uh, $1 billion of gold that Solomon has um, accumulated just from Hiram's gift and just from this single trade mission. Now, let's read about the Queen of Sheba. And, and please know, the Queen of Sheba, uh, we don't know her name. Uh, it's not listed. Um, and we need to be careful not to call her Queen Sheba. I know I myself have done this in the past. She's not Queen Sheba. She is Queen of Sheba. And Sheba, the land of Sheba, um, many think today is where modern-day Yemen is. It's in southern Arabia. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 13 of chapter 10. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There is nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, the clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There is no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of amog wood and precious stones. And the king made of the amog wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such amog wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land 
with her servants. So Solomon has this queen from Sheba come uh, visit her, and, and she comes because she's heard of his wisdom, and she's come a long distance. If, if Sheba is in the land of southern Arabia Peninsula, she has, tra- she has crossed the entire Arabian Peninsula to arrive to Jerusalem. And the queen of Sheba is the lady that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 12, the queen of the south that came to visit Solomon. And again, she comes because of the reputation that she has heard of Solomon, his richness, his prosperity, but most importantly because of his wisdom. And yet she finds that his reputation that precedes him doesn't even tell half the truth. Solomon's wisdom, his wealth, his prosperity exceeds her expectations. All the hard questions that she presented to Solomon, Solomon satisfied her with his answers. In verse 8, she explains how blessed his men are, how happy his servants must be. And note the reason why. It's not because they serve or live in luxury. They get to witness the prosperity. They get to experience such comforts. No, it is because they get to hear the wisdom of Solomon. That is why they are blessed, because they get to hear, see, and experience the wisdom of this great king. In verse 9, she goes on to praise Yahweh and his love for Israel for having put such a wise man on the throne to execute justice and righteousness, all of which is rooted in Solomon's wisdom. She then gifts Solomon, 120 talents of gold, the same amount that Hiram gifted uh, Solomon at the beginning of chapter uh, 9 in, in verse uh, 14. So that, again, that's just over $200 million worth of gold, along with many spices. And it's so many spices that Israel hasn't seen this amount of spices, along with precious, costly stones. Queen's visit leaves her totally satisfied. Solomon gives her some bounty. Nothing that she asked for was denied by Solomon, and she goes on her way. So let's continue, and let's finish out chapter 10 by reading verses 14 through 29. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. While 12 lions stood there one on each end of his step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with a fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of the ships of Tarshish used to come, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as a sycamore, the shepala. 
And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt, a queue. And the king's traders received them from queue at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings, the Hittites, and the kings of Syria. So here we continue to read more about Solomon's wealth, just how extensive it is. We hear that in just one year, just one year, Solomon netted for himself 666 talents of gold. That's 50 pounds shy of 50,000 pounds or 25 tons. That's just shy of $1.3 billion according to today's value of gold. And that's just this one year. And that doesn't include the other various sources that are listed in verse 15. And due to these vast amounts of gold, right, his revenue, this is just the gold that they're talking about. This isn't talking about the other revenue. So the wealth of Solomon, it's really hard to fathom. It's really hard to imagine the extent of it. I mean, the gold alone was so vast that Solomon took some of it and beat it into shields. One, perhaps for ceremonial purposes, right? A gold shield would look nice for the good ceremonies that they would have, the festivals and the feasts. But maybe because also the treasury was being filled up and they needed a, a place, a way to store the gold, so they put it to a pragmatic use by beating it into shields. The large shields in verse 16 had 600 shekels of gold for each shield. Now, a shekel is 11 grams, not 11 ounces, as my email stated earlier in the week, but 11 grams, or two-fifths of an ounce. So each shield had about 15 pounds of gold in it, the large shields. The smaller shields, in verse 17, had three minas of gold, and a mina is about a pound and a quarter, so close to four pounds of gold per uh, the smaller shields. But along with all of this, Solomon had an impressive throne made. His throne was made of ivory. I mean, imagine that. A throne just made of pure ivory. I mean, if you just left it with the ivory, I mean, that's impressive. I mean, imagine just a, a piano that has ivory keys, right? They're hard to find nowadays for obvious reasons. But that's a, those are considered nice, valuable pianos. But imagine a throne that you sit on, just made of ivory. Beyond that, though, Solomon overlays it with the finest of gold. And Solomon has a choice of gold, right? He, of all this gold, I'm sure whatever he considers to be the finest gold is pretty fine. If he has tons of gold at his disposal to choose from, he overlays this magnificent ivory throne with the finest gold. Beyond that, the very things that Solomon drinks water and wine out of in his home, in his leisure, those cups are made of gold. That's what he's drinking out of in his house. Not silver, because due to the vast amounts of gold, inflation has gone up, and silver is practically nothing in Israel. It's pennies to Israel because of the large amount of gold that they have. Now, this contrast is stunning to the reality to those who are experiencing the exile. Remember, First and Second Kings is being compiled during the time of the exile, or shortly after. See, these people who are compiling it, who are pulling together this work, and even the people who hear are probably stunned. Are you telling me that we, our people, we had this amount of gold? That we had this massive kingdom where all the kings came to us, and here we are in exile? I mean, just imagine that revelation, how far they have fallen from God's grace, from God's blessing. It would, it, it would cause them to wonder, how did this happen? How did this come to be? And that serves for us a, a warning 
how easy it is that we can be led astray by sin and how far the fall can be, even when we're in the midst of God's blessing. Then in verses 23 through 24, we are told that Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth, not simply in riches, but in wisdom as well. Again, it's all connected to the wisdom of Solomon. So much so that all the nations, they sought out Solomon for his wisdom of which God gave him. In doing so, they brought offerings and tributes and increased his wealth beyond what it was already at. These verses also confirm the fulfillment of God's promise to Solomon back in 1 Kings 3. Remember, Solomon asks for wisdom when God appeared to him in a vision. And in verses 12 to 13, God responds saying to Solomon, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And so we see the fulfillment of that here in chapter 10. The chapter then closes out with information about how Solomon imported horses and chariots from Egypt, which is an issue which we'll talk about uh, next week in accordance to the law. Uh, but interestingly enough, we find that Solomon's importing uh, the chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and the horses for 150 shekels of silver. Now remember, what is silver to the Israelites? Nothing. So I feel like Egypt is getting the raw end of the deal here because Israel is buying these horses and chariots for like essentially pennies because what's silver to them? It's, it's, it's meaningless to them. So they're giving what's meaningless to Egypt for the chariots and for the horses. Uh, Q, which is located opposite of the Mediterranean from Egypt to the north, uh, they buy from them at a price which is not described to us in the text. So what we have read this morning shows us what we've already known, but it really gives us details historically, the, the extent of Solomon's fame, the extent of his wealth, his prosperity, and how his wisdom was perceived by other nations. And as magnificent as his wealth was, his prosperity was, as magnificent as Solomon was, as impressive as his kingdom was, there is still yet a more impressive kingdom. There is a more impressive man, a more influential man, one who not only influenced the world in his day when he walked the earth here, but still influences the world today. And it is to this man that we now look, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the man who many in the world know, but yet don't know. Because what they do know are simply half-truths. And unfortunately, it's from these half-truths that they form absolute truths. And that is a dangerous practice. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. And we need to understand that if we want to understand the man, if we want to know the full truth and not just the reputation of Jesus, just like Queen of Sheba, she heard the reputation, she heard the half-truths of Solomon, but she wanted to see him for herself so she could see the whole truth. We, if we want to know the man, if we want to know Christ as we are called to know him, we too have to undergo a journey. See, the thing is, his kingdom in small ways is all around us. We see traders and citizens of his kingdom doing business here in this world, living among us. We see them doing life, gathering together, yet they live, they act, and they talk differently than the locals. We see the wisdom of King Jesus and how they live and the peace that they have, despite their circumstances, despite their suffering. We see images of this great kingdom by the crosses and various other symbols that his citizens use to remind themselves of their distant homeland that they so desperately yearn for. 
But if we want to truly understand this king, if we truly want to understand this kingdom, we, like Queen of Sheba, we have to travel a great distance. We have to undergo a journey. And for those of us who do know the king, at least well enough to be considered one of his citizens, to be considered one of his followers, disciples, we are currently on that journey. Yearning to see the king whom we believe in, and yearning to see the king whom we love, yet have not seen with our own eyes. With such a long journey ahead of us, or for some of us, behind us, and nearing its end, and with expected suffering and sacrifice, which some of you have yet to experience, but, many, but the rest of us we will sooner or later experience, we need to always keep before us the glory and riches of this king and his kingdom to remind ourselves why we go on this journey, why we suffer what we suffer. Because we have been called to go great distances, if not geographically, at the very least spiritually, physically, and socially. Therefore, we must know what we are going after. We must know why we suffer, why we sacrifice, and exactly what we are looking for. To help us begin, let's look at a time when Jesus specifically references the visit to Solomon by the Queen of Sheba. Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's referencing the resurrection there. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. See, Jesus is saying that those who are faithless, those who are adulterous, those who are sinful and evil, they look for signs. They look for miracles. Because that's what they want. And so be careful. Anytime somebody pans a Bible study for you or a book that tells you about like unlocking your prophetic voice, how to find miracles in everyday thing, be wary of that. Jesus right here says those who look for signs and miracles, they're evil. They're adulterous. In other words, they are unfaithful. See, what Jesus is telling the scribes and Pharisees is you have something much greater than a sign in America. You have the very word of God, and it's the word of God. Jesus is the word of God in flesh, and it's the very word of God that we always ought to seek. See, Christ being the very word, excuse me, let me back up here. Nineveh, right? Consider Nineveh. What did Nineveh repent at? Nineveh didn't repent at a sign, right? Nothing in the text in the book of Jonah talks about, oh, the Ninevites saw Jonah being spit up by a fish, and they repented at it. No. What did they repent at? the preaching of Jonah, the preaching of the word of God, the conviction of sin, the reality that God's wrath was upon them and they repented at the word, not at the signs or miracles that Jonah committed. The queen of the south, she was not enticed by miracles. She was not even enticed by the, by the works of Solomon, the prosperity of Solomon, but it was the wisdom of Solomon that drew the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, to travel the distance of the Arabian Peninsula to see Solomon, and yet something greater right before these Pharisees and scribes stood before them. Christ, being the very word of God and flesh, the very wisdom of God is greater than any sign and miracle. Yet that is what unfaithful people continue to 
look for. Signs and miracles often don't cause you to be convicted. They don't cause you to deal with, your, with the reality of your unfaithfulness before a holy God. The word of God, faithfully proclaimed, does just that. The wisdom of Christ, of course, is far superior than that of Solomon's. So we must consider if the queen of, of Sheba traveled such great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon, what should we be willing to do to hear the word of God, to know his wisdom? But it's not just his wisdom, it's his riches, his glory, his majesty, all of which puts all of Solomon to shame at his height. So let's talk about the wisdom of Christ briefly. As we've, as we've discussed recently, we, we discussed the wisdom of Christ uh, more thoroughly in 1 Kings 3, so we'll do a more brief overview uh, right now, and then we'll look at the riches and the glory of Christ. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. See, Paul is saying here, he wants his people, he wants the people of, of, of God's kingdom to reach all the riches of full assurance, full assurance of your salvation, that you are redeemed, that you are holy by the work of Christ. And this assurance and understanding is found in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is the person of Christ, the revelation of Christ, which is the gospel, in whom all wisdom, all the treasures of knowledge are hidden. And he says this because if you are sure of this, if you know this wisdom, you know who Christ is, you know the mystery of God's will, the plausible arguments, right? He's not saying unreasonable arguments, but plausible arguments. The arguments that sound like they're Christian, that sound like they're biblical, but indeed are not. He doesn't want these arguments to lead them astray. He doesn't want them to lead us astray. So we must know the wisdom of Christ. We must understand who Christ is. We must know his word, lest we be led astray and we start looking for signs and miracles. This is why we don't play music from Bethel and Hillsong, because they teach Finding, looking for signs and miracles. They, they, they teach plausible arguments, so we keep people away. I have a, a, a young friend of mine. She's a, a good, dear friend, but she's reading a book now called Unlocking Your Prophetic Voice. You know how she got there? Because the church she attends plays Bethel and Hillsong music. So she started listening to the pastors of that church. And, she's like, and then she looked at going to the school there. Thankfully, she was dissuaded from going to the supernatural school of ministry, but she stayed away from there but she still listens to them. She's still influenced. So now she's looking for miracles. She's looking to unlock her prophetic voice. She's looking for new revelation. And it's all because, well, the church plays their music. Other people listen to the music. Everyone else is, is doing it, so it can't be wrong. She's being led away by plausible arguments. She needs the wisdom of Christ. Let's go to Ephesians 1, 3, and read through 14. Paul here says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, or according to his wisdom, would be another way of saying that, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in what? All wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, or according to his wisdom, so that we who were, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." So here it's the wisdom of God that leads to our redemption. For in his wisdom is his grace. You want to find the grace of God? You want to taste the grace of God in your life? You need to know his wisdom. And as we talked about in previous weeks, sometimes receiving the grace of God means that he corrects you, he rebukes you as he warns you about the way that you are going. And we read about these, these riches of God's grace towards us. They are a byproduct of his wisdom just as much as the riches of Solomon's kingdoms were fruits of his wisdom. So the redemption of our souls are fruits of God's wisdom to us. Now continuing on, let's talk about the glory. Ephesians 1 kind of hints at the glory, but let's talk about the glory, the prosperity that awaits the faithful believer who rejoices in the wisdom of God and is faithful to the wisdom of God. Paul in Romans 8 talks about the general suffering that the believer will experience, and not just suffering that you experience uh, in regards to persecution, but any kind of suffering, any kind of tribulation. It can just be the simple fact that we suffer because we live in a fallen world, so you might be ill, you might be unwell, tragedy might befall upon you. But in verse 18 of Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or another way to put it would be, I consider that the journey that we have undertaken, the sacrifices that we have endured, the suffering that we are undergoing right now are not worth to compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the kingdom in its fullness, the glory of Christ that awaits us, it cannot compare to whatever you are suffering at this moment. In 2 Corinthians 4, 15, 18, Paul talking about here, this suffering is related to ministry, uh, specifically to what him and the apostles and the other disciples are suffering for the work of ministry, for the sake of the building up of the body. Because if you do ministry well, if you do ministry really at all, faithfully, you're going to suffer. You're going to get hurt. You're going to be wounded. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 15, 18, it is all for your sake, so, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In other words, though we grow tired, though our body breaks down, we have arthritis or you, we are wounded, we are tired, uh, whatever we are struggling with, our inner soul, our spirit is being renewed day by day as we serve the body. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
See, Paul is saying this light momentary affliction, and it's light and momentary, not because the affliction itself is like it barely hurts. No, it hurts. The suffering is deep. The cuts are deep. They are fresh, and it doesn't feel momentary. But Paul is saying it's light and momentary compared to what awaits us, compared to the eternal weight of glory. Think of all the weight of gold that Solomon had. That does not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits each and every one of us. Paul says, we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. We do not look to the things that are transient, but the things that are unseen, that are eternal. This is why we do communion every week. That regardless of what I do up here, whether it's a poor job, good job, regardless, maybe you're so distracted, maybe you're so hurt by this past week, or maybe by something that happened this morning, or maybe a church member said something to you as they greeted you this morning, and they didn't tend to, but they hurt you. And so all you've been thinking about is what they said. But at the very least, when we come to communion, you can be reminded of what you were called to look to, to the eternal, to the unseen. So that is in part why we do communion, to help us in this endeavor to always gaze upon the eternal. Peter, leaving the Apostle Paul, we'll go to the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7, writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, hang in there. Endure. Go the distance. Peter is saying that whatever trial you're going through, it could be persecution, it could be unemployment, it could be depression, anxiety, cancer, covid Whatever it may be, whatever burden, whatever trial you are going through, rejoice, though now for a little while you're experiencing it. Because if you are faithful, it will show that your faith is genuine. Because if your faith is not genuine, the affliction, the adversity will cause you to leave the faith. You won't be faithful to the bride of Christ. You won't be faithful to God. You will walk in sin. You will turn away from the faith. But if you endure, then your faith is found to be genuine. And that is more precious than gold, right? So Solomon's kingdom had all that gold to offer. But what God offers is much more precious. And when we have a genuine faith that endures the fire, then we will, we will be able to re, re, uh, rejoice in the praise and the glory and honor that is at the revealing of Jesus Christ. When we, when either when we go to him or when he returns. So you need to endure. The people who do not endure they are the ones that John speaks of in 1 John, that though, yeah, they started with us, but they left us. And since they left us, well, they were never really of us. People who have a general, genuine faith in Christ, they will endure. Now, if they don't endure, and they do have a genuine faith, maybe their experience and their process there is that they come back to the fold. They repent of the mistake, and they grow in their faith. And their faith is essentially strengthened. Some of us, Some of you out there, you're willing, I'm going to challenge some of you right now, some of you are willing to lose your job in the name of holiness by refusing the vaccine. Now, I'm not not talking about whether or not your, your refusal is justified or not, but I want us to keep things in balance here. You're willing to lose your job on moral grounds over the vaccine, but you're not willing to lose your job to deal with your sexual immorality. 
Those of you who struggle with pornography so much so where perhaps you need to quit your job and perhaps go somewhere else, you're not willing to do that. But to not get the vaccine, you're willing to lose your job. You're not willing to go to the same lengths to ensure holiness in other areas of your life, to deal with your anger issue, your gluttony, your laziness, your apathy. But when it comes to the vaccine, you'll say, no, I can't do it for holiness, for moral grounds. But yet you leave the back door open. In fact, you more than leave the back door open. You have a sign that says, hey, sin, come in. You are welcome here because people can't see it. But this, this is my flag. People can see this. You need to be careful there. I'm not saying that you can't do that. But if you're refusing the vaccine at the same time, allowing sexual morality in your life, not taking the same extremes, the same measures to control, to mortify the sin in your life, you're nothing but a whitewashed tomb. You're a hypocrite. So be watchful. Be careful. Mortify all sin in your life. Seek holiness in all areas. Do not think that simply because other people are doing this and you're doing it, you're holy when you're engaging and open unholiness before a holy God who sees all things. So maintain the balance. Therefore, do as Peter tells us to in 1 Peter. At the end of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and this is what helps us to maintain the balance, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. And don't miss this Verse here, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This holy God who is holy, who expects your whole life to be holy, every single area of it must be holy, you can cast all your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. Peter goes on and says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And maybe he's using the vaccine refusal as an act of righteousness to be like, look, man, you're good. You're standing your ground on this, and so you take it easy on these others. You can't do that. Not when it comes to holiness. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, now, when Peter says a little while, he's not saying that the suffering that you're undergoing right now is going to be brief. He's essentially saying that our lives, in light of eternity, is a little while. You might suffer your entire life. That cancer you have that you don't get over, you might, you, it might not kill you, but it might cause a lot of pain in your life, a lot of suffering, a lot of embarrassment maybe, or whatever it is, your depression, it may never go away. But this life is a little while in scope of all eternity. He continues, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We cannot miss that. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory. And who are you? You're not Solomon. And think of all that Solomon had. But yet you have been called to his eternal glory in Christ by the work of Christ. Ponder that. You and I, we are not worthy of this glory. But God somehow has made a way for us to be worthy by sending his son, by his son accomplishing what we could not and sending his spirit to dwell within us. So when we suffer, rejoice. Because there's an eternal glory that's not rooted in you and I. Praise God for that. I think you you should relate to that 
because we know we are unfaithful people. We are sinners. We mess up. We fail. We do not live as we ought to live. We strive for it, but we struggle and we fail in it. This eternal glory is in Christ. So regardless of what happens to you, regardless of what you do if you are faithful, this eternal glory is yours. And it's in Christ. And it is given to you by the God of all grace. So when you sin, you know that grace is there. It abounds all the more. And we go to him. I attended a, a conference uh, on Monday, this past Monday, for pastors. And it was meant to encourage and strengthen pastors. And so we listened to this keynote speaker give uh, lessons he learned from 40 years of ministry trying to encourage other pastors, tells them don't be people pleasers and all these other things. But you know what was lacking? Christ. We have all this pragmatism, all this pragmatic wisdom, but not once do they remind us who we are in Christ, our calling in Christ, not just simply as pastors, but as believers. Like the gospel, they think the gospel is just for those who are coming into the door, and we leave it behind. The gospel is for us every single day. We need to be reminded of the good news that we have in Christ, the eternal glory that awaits us, that regardless of what happens in your life, regardless if the, even if the church abandons you, if you're faithful, you have Christ. You are not alone, and you will always have him because our God is a God of all grace. There was one pastor there. He doesn't think he's going to make it to his sabbatical in 2022. It's been postponed a couple years, and he's just like, I mean, he's in tears. He's like, I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. And the wisdom that he was given was just worldly wisdom. You mentioned the gospel, and people were like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's nice, but it doesn't help him. That's all he needs is Christ. That's all you and I need. We need Christ. If you go to a church, and all they give you is 10 tips on how to be how to, like, a better marriage, or how to be a good parent, or how to do this, but they don't give you Christ, that does you no good. You need Christ, I need Christ. Every day, we need Christ. That's all we should be seeking. That's all we should be yearning for. The depths of the wisdom of Christ, they're unending. It's not going to be repetitive if you do it faithfully. It's worth sacrificing for. It is worth suffering for. It's worth going to the other side of the world, leaving your family behind, and serving Christ because of the eternal glory that awaits us. Consider all the glory that creation has. Think of creation in Genesis 1 when it, when it was completed and God looked at it and said it was very good. All the glory that creation has, that doesn't compare to the glory, the eternal glory that's in Christ that awaits us when we go to him. Because when we go to him or when he returns, he will restore us. Peter finishes this. He says, eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if we go limping across the finish line because we are beaten, we are broken, that cancer has done a number on us. Or maybe just ministry has done a number on us. And when I speak ministry, it's not just being a pastor. It's serving in the nursery. It's doing AV. It's, it's, it's greeting. It's being part of life group. It's being part of a body and doing all the one another's within Christ. That's ministry. Right? That's true ministry is doing the one another, is being a faithful member of the body of Christ, loving one another, praying for one another, meeting the needs of one another, suffering with one another. And maybe you struggle with depression. Maybe you struggle with anxiety, insecurities. You're an introvert, but you're trying to be faithful to the body. Whatever it may be, may, and you just, you're just barely hanging on to the coattails of Christ. Well, so be it. As long as you're faithful. He will restore you. He will give you a glorified body. He will confirm you. He will affirm He will restore you to the fullness in a way that you just can't understand now. 
And this is why we need to preach Christ. This is why we need to preach on what awaits us at the end of all days or when he returns. Because we need to be encouraged. Because we are on this long journey. And this life will beat us down. So praise God that we have these truths, that we have his scripture. And again, this is why we do communion, and we are going to come to communion now, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We look back to consider that the Son of God took on flesh, died on the cross, bled so that we would be forgiven, that our sins would be covered by his blood, and that we would be forever forgiven, forever redeemed in the eyes of a holy God, and that one day he will return once again, and we will eat at his table with the God of all grace. And on that day, he will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. So I'm going to pray. Then after I pray, Mark's going to come up and administer communion. When you are, uh, you take a moment after I pray to pray, confess your sins to God. Uh, and if you're not holding on, in, on to any um, unrepentant sin and, and no animosity towards another brother or sister in Christ, if you are having animosity towards brother or sister in Christ, be reconciled first. Uh, then come on up to the table and do so with joy. Like regardless of what sin is in your life right now, confess it, repent. Ask God to help you. Maybe you're struggling. Like you're faithful on the vaccine part in, in accordance to your conscience, whatever that may be. But maybe you've been struggling with sexual immorality. Maybe you've been struggling with laziness, gluttony, whatever it may be. Confess your sin, seek repentance, and rejoice that you are forgiven and that God will give you power to overcome that. And we, the body of Christ, we are here to help you in that. And then come up, grab the elements, come, go down to your chair and consume them, and then we will sing some more songs of praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy this morning. And thank you for your grace. We are, in, we are always in desperate need of it. And we thank you that the well is deep, that the well is unending, that there is no sin in our lives or anyone's lives that can ever reach the bottom of your grace. We thank you that you remind us, that you've given us your word, your wisdom, so that we may know your will, so that we may know that we are forgiven, so that we may know that we are holy by the spirit that dwells within us, that sanctifies us by the washing of your word, by the blood of your son. Father, help us to revel in this truth. Help us to rejoice in this good news. Help us to confess our sins, as painful as it may be. Help us to acknowledge our unfaithfulness before you. But help us to lean into you fully, Father, trusting in you in all our ways. Father, remind us that we are not alone. Help us to keep one another in prayers, especially those who are sick. We ask that you would heal them, Father, this morning. We ask that you would comfort them and encourage them. We ask that you would bless hope, the body here, to be a blessing to others, not just to one another, but to the community as well. Father, we ask that you would sanctify us, edify us, that by your grace, you would make us righteous and holy, that we would be vessels of your glory, that we could share your glory, that we could share reports of your grace, your good news to others who do not know you, or maybe people who have heard half-truths and don't know your son as we know him, that you would use us to bring them into your fold, those whom you have called to be redeemed. Father, help us to seek opportunities 
to serve one another, to serve the lost as well so that they can know your son. Help us to be willing to lay down the idols of our lives, the desires of our flesh. Help us to be willing to undergo that long journey, not begrudgingly, but willingly and with joy, knowing the kingdom that awaits us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to continually look for the kingdom of God. Father, and, and if your kingdom tarries, if the return of your son is delayed, or it's not delayed, but if it takes longer than what we would like it to, Father, and you call us home, and those moments, in our final moments, when we die, Father, encourage us, give us peace. May our very death be a witness to those who see it. Give us joy. May we die as much as possible with a smile on our face, and if we can't do that, a smile on our souls. Help us have the confidence knowing that when we die, Father, and our eyes close, we open them to see the face of your Son. And that regardless of how this world, even how our families may view us, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So Father, encourage us this morning. There are many burdens, there are many anxieties amongst your faithful people here at Hope and across the globe. May we be reminded of the eternal glory, the eternal weight of glory that waits us, Father. Be with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering persecution, who are suffering things that we just we, we can't even imagine here in America, Father. And in light of that, help us to honor them by how we live in, in faithfulness. Father, help us to be good stewards with what you have blessed us with. Father, we ask all these things for your glory. And as we come to your table, we ask that you would bless the crackers and the juice, that they will be the gifts of grace that they are, that they will remind us of the work that your son has done, that they will remind us of the return of your son, that he is coming, and he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous, and he will restore all things, and death will be no more, and he will wipe away every tear. Father, we thank you for all this wonderful good news that you've given us. We thank you for this grace. And again, we ask it for your glory, by power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.